Welcome to the Cover Two Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover Two Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover Two Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover Two Resources. Doctors are prone to drug and alcohol abuse. It's estimated that rates of addiction among the general population are 8 to 10 percent, but among physicians it can be as high as 15 percent. What appears to account for the difference is physicians' distress and plentiful access. Drug companies send doctors free samples. Patients bring in their unused painkillers for disposal. Colleagues freely write a script or two as a professional courtesy. Abuse is so prevalent in the profession that a 2013 study in the Journal of Addiction Medicine revealed that 69% of doctors abuse prescription medicine to relieve stress and physical or emotional pain. For some physicians, access to prescription medication can be virtually unlimited. Today, we'll talk with Dr. Faye Jamali, who was a successful doctor at Kaiser Permanente practicing anesthesiology when a freak accident turned her world upside down. Dr. Jamali is here to share her story of addiction, recovery, and a newfound passion for helping others in the medical profession. So, doctor, welcome. Thank you very much. Okay. So, you graduated from the University of California, San Francisco Medical School, I understand? I graduated from University of California Davis Medical School, but then went to University of California San Francisco for my anesthesia training for my residency. Got to thank you for clarifying. So you went on to a very successful career as an anesthesiologist, but then you got sidetracked. So tell us a little bit about what happened. Um, well, as you stated earlier in your intro, uh, it was kind of a freak accident. Um, in 2007, I was having a combined birthday party for my children who were two and five years old at the time. And um, it was outside in Oakland, uh, California. I went to my car to take the goodie bags out of the car. And as I was returning, I slipped. I was wearing slippery sandals and I fell and broke my wrist. Um, so that led to, um, two surgeries, a lot of pain, um, and, uh, being given a bunch of prescription, uh, narcotics for the, for the surgery and afterwards for the pain, but in a huge quantity. I think back then the surgeon was trying to be nice and said, here you go, here's a bunch. So you don't have to call me for a refill. Um, we used to be told back then that, you know, you have to treat that pain aggressively down to a zero. Can you timestamp the year? 2007. 2007. In July. Okay. July. In July of 2007. And do you recall what the medication was that you were provided? Uh, I think it was Vicodin. I mean, I prior to that, I wasn't, I had no history of alcohol abuse, drug use, no family history of it. So um, it was just kind of a generic, either Vicodin or Percocet, and probably 100 tablets, a huge amount. Wow, 100 tablets, that is yeah. a huge amount. Okay. I remember it was this big, big bottle. And um, so, yes, I used it as prescribed to help with the pain. Um, 
But it was just kind of sitting there. And I realized that sometimes when I took it and things were stressful at home, if I had a fight with my husband, I just didn't seem to care once I had that medication on board. So it's not like I started abusing it right away, but it was there. And I realized every now and then, if I'm having a really stressful day, if I take one of these pills, it just kind of smooths the edges. I rarely would drink just because I get a lot of migraine headaches and any kind of alcohol triggers it. So really, this was kind of my version of having a glass of wine. Um, And I think it stuck up on me. Um, I never had to refill that prescription, but I think it started the seeds of using a medication not as prescribed, but using it to numb your feelings, to, um, to make things go away that you don't want to deal with. One day after work, when I was having a really, really bad migraine again, and when that would happen, I would just go to the ER and get an injection. It was the end of my shift. And at the end of the shift, we um, discard our our waste, our narcotics that we haven't used. And I had some in my pocket. And I thought, well, this is exactly the same medication that they're going to give me in the ER. I'm a physician. Why don't I just give it to myself? So I did that. I injected myself and the headache went away and I felt this horrible guilt of, oh my God, I just crossed the line here. I'd been an anesthesiologist for 14, 15 years back then. Never once did it occur to me that the medications that I use for my patients have anything to do with me. I mean, there's a big boundary there. Out of curiosity, what did you inject? Fentanyl. I had some fentanyl. fentanyl which is a um, pretty common bread and butter medication we use in every surgery for anesthesia. So that's used all the time. Um, So I felt awful. I I really just like, okay, well, that's never going to happen again. Um, And, uh, but the, the, the kicker was the next day when I got my migraine again, I tend to tended to get them cyclically once a month at a certain time of the month. When I got the migraine again, it was towards the end of the shift. I'm like, Oh, I know exactly what to do with that really helped it. I didn't have to go wait in the ER or anything. So I did it again. I I went to a bathroom after work and I injected. And this was the time where I felt euphoria. This was the time that I truly believe something broke in my brain. It felt like it got hijacked. And I had this thought of, oh my God, all these years I had access to this amazing feeling and I never used this. I was angry at myself, like, oh, what a fool. I could have been feeling this for years. No rational person thinks that way. I mean, Uh, I have no history of this. Wow. And that's how it started. So the actual addiction was maybe a three-month ordeal. And during that three months, I never used at work. I only used on my days off from work. And just would take medications from work, divert them um, for my personal use. And um, over that three-month period, I upped my dose almost tenfold. So for someone with no history of addiction, I think I showed rare talent in it. (laughs) I'm amazed. I'm amazed I'm alive. The dosages I was taking toward the end could have killed me, Um, almost did kill me. I did find myself once, um, I'd gone out to dinner with my husband, we got into a big fight, and I just decided to drive to the hospital, just in my civilian clothes, I went in, into the recovery room, said hi to the nurses, went straight to the narcotic machine, just punched in a random name for any kind of patient, and checked out medications. 
and went into the bathroom stall. I injected, um, and I remember waking up later. Uh, the needle was still in my arm. I had vomited. I had urinated on myself on the floor. There's blood coming out of my arm where the needle was still stuck in there. This is how physicians overdose in a bathroom alone, having injected themselves. It's not like I went in there to do this, to overdose. What happens is the, at the first dose, I'm a doctor. I know exactly what to give myself. The problem becomes after that first dose, you're altered. You're kind of in your, not in your physician's mind. So in that setting, I was like, oh, there's more left. Let me inject some more. And you wake up, hopefully you wake up and you go, oh my God, I can't believe I used that much. You would think that after that incident, that would have been a wake up call. Uh, but no, I got up and my first thought was, I can't believe this. I'm so upset at my husband. Look what he made me do. Whoa. This is an addict's mind. So how did you come to the realization that you were addicted at that point to fentanyl, it sounds like? Uh, Yes. By that point, I was trying different medications. It was fentanyl, Versed, um, Demerol, Dilaudid. You know, as anesthesiologists, we have like a potpourri of medications to try. um, Access is not a problem. No, no. Access. And, And that's the thing. I just, because of that, I still felt like, well, I'm not getting this medication on the street corner. I'm not a criminal, you know, I'm a physician and you rationalize things. Uh, and, you know, I kept thinking to myself, an addict is someone who's that homeless person on the side of the street. I'm, I'm a soccer mom. I'm a doctor. I, I can't be an addict. This is just like a phase. I'm dealing with a stressful point in my life and I can stop. And every day I would tell myself, I'm going to stop because I knew in the back of my mind that there was something really wrong, but I just didn't know what to do. So I would wake up every morning and I would say today or this week, it wasn't daily that I was using, I'm not going to use at all. I would um, come up with ways to try and prevent myself from using. One of the ones I would try was I um, used to use these um, veins in my arm. And I decided if I put a Band-Aid over those veins with my daughter's name on it, one on one side, and my son's name on my other arm, I will tell myself, look, if you inject there, it's like you're injecting into the eyeballs of your children. I was trying to make it as horrific as possible to prevent myself from doing it. But you know what? When the craving came, I would rip that Band-Aid off and inject. And that made you feel even lower because you were like, what kind of mother would do that? So addiction feeds on your, on itself. It really does. It brings you lower and lower. And I thought, you know, I can't go and I can't, I don't even know who to ask for help. There's such stigma associated with addiction. I kept telling myself, no, 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 it, it'll get better. It'll get better. And I was afraid that one day I might use at work and harm a patient. To me, that would have, I would have rather died than do that. Um, but you already had used in the workplace. You came back from the dinner with your yes, husband and went in and used it. while I was on duty. Not while you're on duty, right. Yeah. I just wanted to make that clarification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I just was afraid that I would use during work hours and then be an impaired physician treating patients. And that was somehow, and I was afraid that the way this was progressing, it would end that way. I almost wanted to, I'd rather hurt myself than a patient. But at the same time, I thought, if I die of this, I have two small children. It just seemed like every time I would try and claw up towards the light, I would drop down three more steps. I'd go up two, I'd drop down four. 
I'd like be good for two days and and then you'd feel even worse because you weren't able to handle it. So the disease really feeds on itself. It makes you feel more and more worthless. And um, I was incredibly lucky in that the, the, my workplace found out because I was just actually subconsciously, I think I wanted to get caught because I was just going there putting my fingerprint on the machine that says I'm checking out drugs under a random patient's name, not a patient that's having surgery under my list of operations. So, so that was an ongoing thing. That was your way to acquire. Was, uh, yeah. yeah. But over, you know, initially I would just keep uh, the waste I had left but then after a while, I was like, well, I think I want to try Dilaudid or something. And I would just check it out on our patient's name. And I think that was my subconscious way of wanting to cry out and get some help. And the, the hospital found out. And one day... Um, How'd they find out? Because it just didn't make sense. I was using checking out medications to people that weren't having surgery. They were just like patients on the floor. Because um, the machine has a list of every in-hospital patient, so I would just pick a name. Oh, Mr. Brown, today we'll need some fentanyl. So you know, there was an audit trail there. Yes, finally they traced it back to absolutely. you specifically. Yeah, so the pharmacy first found out about this, mm-hmm. and then they uh, alerted the um, administration. And um, one day after I had finished um, surgery, um, they said uh, we'd like to meet you in this conference room. I walked in, and there was. I say eight or 10 people sitting around this big large conference room. And I thought my heart sank and I was like, Oh my God, this is it. And they said, Dr. Jamali, we have reason to believe that you've been diverting narcotics and all these stacks of papers and that uh, they were going to start an investigation that I should turn in my badge pending the results of that investigation. And at that point, I didn't even have the presence of mind to utter anything other than, I don't know. I don't know. Like bumbling. Like I, I didn't even know what to say to that. I just handed them my badge. They followed me to my locker and like searched my locker. There was nothing there. Um, and I went home and I thought, Oh my God, what just happened? I, I had to go pick up my daughter from daycare and my son from daycare. I, and I thought, do I just pretend to my family that I'm going to work tomorrow? Like I was trying to figure out how do I get this, keep this going until they figure out what they're going to figure out. I, I just didn't know what had happened. And the, actually, interestingly, that that evening I had a session with my um, with our marriage therapist, our counselor, because we were having so much trouble. And um, towards the end of the session, she just said, hey, it seems like something's wrong. Are you okay? And I'm like, oh, no, no, nothing's going on. There's just some stuff, drugs missing from work, and they think I might have something to do with it. And my husband rushes to my defense and like, what? Don't they know that you don't even drink? Like, nobody knew. He had no idea. Your husband didn't even know. No. I only used when nobody was home, um, on days off during the day, because I was working part-time at the time. So, but the episode where you guys had the blow up while you're out to dinner and then you came back mm-hmm. and you used there in the workplace and you blamed yeah. it on him, but he never knew that. No, no he was just thought I was upset. I went off for two or three hours to blow off steam and I came back. Wow. He had no idea. And he's a physician too. <laughs> so at this time, you think that you're fired, period. You don't, you don't, you, you think that I'm you've been terminated. Fired. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking this is it. This is the end. Um, so anyway, so he comes to my defense. The session's over. We go home. We put the kids to bed. And I'm just like, oh, my God, what's going to happen to my life? And after the kids were asleep, my husband came to me and said, 
sweetie, is there anything you want to tell me? And I thought, okay, this is it. This is the part where I tell him he's going to take the kids, divorce me. I've lost my job. I'll lose my home, everything. This was it. This was the lowest point of my life. And I couldn't even say the words. And all I did was I rolled up my sleeves where I used to inject and you could see the marks. And I showed it to him. How do you react? I braced myself thinking this is it. And instead, he picked me up and he said, sweetie, why don't you tell me? We'll get you help. Hmm. Get you help. That's beautiful. And I think that was the first time that I felt like, despite all this, the truth does set you free. As horrible as you think it is, actually, the truth is a lot easier than trying to live a lie. And um, I've never loved my husband more (laughs) than that moment. The next morning, I called work and um, I admitted to them what had happened. And um, it's interesting because um, one of my angels in all of this, other than my sponsor, is um, Dr. David Pating. He um, is an addiction specialist, and he was actually the head of our chemical dependency and um, recovery program at the hospital. And I had seen him in the past over the years for like postpartum depression because he's a psychiatrist and he helps treat other physicians in the at Kaiser. And so he knew me very well. He knew about my marriage troubles and all that. So when they had first gone to him, the administration had and told them that they suspected me of um, using drugs. He was like, her? No, she doesn't, she doesn't do anything. Like well, that's one in the world that they would have yeah. suspected, right? Because I just prior to that literally had had no experience with it, didn't use anything. <laughs> so anyway, um, so this physician really helped save my life. Um, I went and saw him that day and he just said, look, I'm, I'm so sorry this happened to you. I want to let you know the next few years are going to be long and hard, but there is hope at the end of this and we'll walk you through it and we're here to support you. And, you know, at the time prior to that, actually, every physician who had a problem with addiction, there was this cookie cutter um, prescription of you go away for three months to some place like Betty Ford or something. And he was more like, look, you don't use narcotics from the street. The only time, and it's only three months you've been using, you have two small children. He tailored a outpatient program for me um, where I would go and um, just spend the day and do recovery and come home at night so I could still be with my three-year-old and six-year-old at the time. Um, and my you know, husband's a surgeon. It, it would have really disrupted us, our family life. So he thought it would work if I did that. And um, he got just guided me through this. Um, I got a lawyer, um, you know, fortunately, unfortunately for me, one month prior to my uh, problems with addiction, the state of California scrapped their physician health program. California is one of only three states in the nation that doesn't have a physician health program. And what are physician health programs? That's when a physician who's impaired or struggling with any kind of alcohol or drug use enrolls in a program where they're being tested, they're going to groups, all of this And as long as they're successfully doing this, their license is protected. It's not blasted over the internet that this person has a problem with addiction as long as they're doing their program. And that's one of the reasons, and we can get to this later, is why physicians do so well. It's a very comprehensive program. However, the state of California scrapped it because of 
some irregularity, some political pressure, who knows. But it, literally when this happened, it was one month before I went in. So I knew my license was on the line. So I had to hire a lawyer and um, I went into and just rehab on my own um, and uh, my insurance paid for it. The insurance I had from my workplace, I told people at work um, because I needed, because I was gone all of a sudden. I was gone. Poof. One day I was gone. And I had been there for 14, 15 years at the time. It was crazy. So doctor, in 2016, you decided to leave anesthesiology and begin helping others who are struggling with addiction. So tell us about that work. You know, I realized my story might be able to help other people. Um, uh, there was a risk that by coming out and telling people about this, that I would be judged. Um, and I um, was worried about that, uh, my reputation and whatnot. But I thought if I could, my story could help just one person, it would be worth it. So now that I'm out there as someone for self least likely person you would think who would be an addiction. Um, but I, I have been helping other physicians, people who I posted on Facebook, for example, that this was my story. And I can't tell you how many people are like, Oh my God, I can't believe you went through this. You're so brave. By the way, I know so-and-so can she give you a call just to run some things by you? So I've had quite a few physicians call me, just ask me my thoughts about things, questions. It's kind of an informal, confidential way of, chatting about the stresses of uh, the profession and addiction. And what kind so, of questions? The, sometimes they don't come out straight away and say they're having problems. They'll come around it. They'll say like, you know, I've been having a lot of stress. I don't know. Am I drinking too much? What do you think? Like, this is how much I drink or, you know, I, I miss work a couple of times. And, you know, I'm worried though, if I do have a problem, what if work finds out and the board finds out, you know, things like that. So I'm able to help them navigate things um, a little bit or give them uh, advice of who to contact, resources. Um, you know, you can't make a decision for anyone, say, yes, you are an addict or not. That is someone's person. But at least you can listen. You cannot judge, which is huge. Sure. <laughs> um and uh, be of help, be of service. But with your life's experience of navigating those waters, mm -hmm. that particularly back in that time, you know, nine years ago, nine plus years ago, right? Um, that's got to be invaluable to your peers out there where they're struggling with that. I mean, gosh, you kept your career in this whole process when back then I have to believe that, you know, 99% of the time a physician's going to lose their license. That's just the way that it was, I think. Am I right? No, actually, there were physician health programs. That's why physicians do so well. Uh, in California, they scrapped it. But if you are willing to get help and enroll yourself in this program, then you're fine. But if you're not going to get help, yes, of course, you're going to lose your license. Absolutely. So it's a matter of did, do you want to be in recovery? You are the only person who can decide that. But people can help you get there. Because when you're in your disease, there's nothing. It's like an existential threat, someone trying to take your drugs away. Um, so you just need someone to help you show. And, and if you can, if I had someone like me, uh, my story, if I had heard that, I think that would have been a huge help to me, get the treatment earlier. That there shouldn't be shame regarding this. That there is an amazing life during recovery, much better than the life you were trying to numb your pains during prior to um, going into recovery. So I, I, 
as weird as it sounds, I am grateful that this happened to me because today I have a much more amazing life than I did before. Now, I wouldn't recommend everyone become an addict in order to get here, but I am, I just live in gratitude. Every bit of it was worth it because it got me here. And if I can help someone else get to where I am today, that's great. And my journey's not over. Every day, you got to renew your commitment to recovery every single day. This is a lifelong journey. Um, just like if you're diabetic, you're not cured once you take your insulin. You have to take your insulin every day. Same thing with re- with recovery. Got to do your recovery every day. It's a lifestyle. So can you speak a little bit more to the physician health program? You used to have that program in California. I believe California right now is in the process of getting one back to online, basically, back to working because they do realize it's a public safety issue uh, because, you know, Right now, for example, if a physician is under probation, the way it is, was with me, a lot of insurers won't cover a patient who, uh, a, a physician who is under probation. So they lose their livelihood. I was lucky in that I worked for a hospital where the HMO and the insurance, Kaiser Permanente, all are one. But out in private practice, most physicians, if they're on probation, they can lose a huge bunch of their patients because an insurance company will not uh, contract with them if they're, on, uh, if they're on probation. So you can imagine why physicians in California might not want to come out and get help. Sure. They'll lose their livelihood. <laughs> so yeah. we do need a physician health program. They're comprehensive. They make sure that the physician is being drug tested, getting the help they need as far as education, support, therapy, meditation, you name it. Back to what you're doing day in, day out. Um, mm-hmm. Any final thoughts on that that you'd like to add in, in the rewards or kind of really giving back from your life's experiences? Um, you know, it's been only a few months, uh, but every time I'm able to share my story with someone and find that it helps them, um, it only strengthens my recovery and strengthens my resolve to help more people with this. And um also, be more fearless, not worry what people think of me, but just kind of keep doing my thing and let people judge me if they want. Um, uh, as long as I can help even one person, they'll be worth it. Doctor, what would you like people to take away from this podcast? Um, the addiction is not a moral failing. It's a disease like any other disease. Um, you know, um, People who are addicted to nicotine, let's say, someone who's trying to quit smoking, everybody's cheering them on. Come on, you can do it. You can do it. Right? Yep. So if you have someone who's trying to kick their narcotic habit with this opioid epidemic that's going on, we should be cheering them, not criminalizing it, not putting them in jail. We should dedicate the money, the public resources to get people the help they need, or we're going to lose a generation. This epidemic is rampant. Doctors aren't immune to it, as we've been discussing. But I think we need to have a whole, um, uh, a more comprehensive approach to dealing with addiction. First off is to take the stigma away, try and support the people who are struggling with this, and to put money into programs that will help. Well, I want to thank you for your time today, doctor. It's really been a delight to get to meet you and spend a little bit of time learning more about your story. Thank you very much. Appreciate you having me.
We've been talking today with Dr. Faye Jamali, who has been a successful, had a very successful career as an anesthesiologist with Kaiser Permanente, and a freak accident ended up in addiction for her. And she has turned that challenge into a passion for helping others recover from addiction, others within her profession. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources, and thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.